here last week, so I know how much I need. Oh, my Lord. So there must be a lot of people that just decided to stay home today. Don't listen to her again. And you've replaced them. All right, so I'm going to do a quick recap. Um, Last week, I spoke about different stages of growth and the fact that, um, okay, so why aren't we working? There we go. And the fact that in life, there are different stages that we go through. You know, we're born, we become a toddler, a a horrendous teenager. You know, we have babies, whatever, and we buy a a motorbike and grow a ponytail in our midlife crisis. And we grow old and we all recognise different stages uh, in in everyday life and we recognise that that is how people live and grow. Um, And the Christian faith is no different. Um, for some reason we tend to think that the Christian walk is kind of static and that we just learn more about God but not realising that there are actual stages, developmental stages in our Christian walk. The Bible acknowledges that. It says uh, in Corinthians, Paul writes, when I was a child I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult I gave up childish ways. He is talking about the spiritual journey in this particular context. The Apostle John also writes that. Uh, writes about the different stages. Okay, this isn't as flash as I thought it would be. Ah. Um, he talks about little children, young men, and fathers. Um, so the Bible does recognise that there are stages in our faith journey. Um, and, but for some reason, we kind of don't talk about it a lot. Um, we tend to talk about the first few stages of our uh, Christian journey, but then we kind of stop there. And last week I introduced these guys, Hagberg and Gerlich, um, who talk about the six stages of love. I'm only going to talk up to about stage four today and the wall. That's kind of where we're going to hang. But um, the stage one is the recognition of God. Stage two is life of discipleship. And stage three is productive life. Those are the stages of basically coming to Christ, recognising Christ, um, learning about Christ, and then serving in the local church. And I'm going to repeat this quote because Vincent says, most evangelical models of Christian growth stop here, like at stage three. Uh, The implication is that the pinnacle of Christian maturity is faithful, committed service Um, particularly in the context of a church. In other words, you've made it when you kind of find Christ, you're discipled and then you start serving in the church. Now you're really a mature Christian. Um, The most committed people serve professionally in the church. That's That's the idea. However, it's obvious that a person can arrive at this stage and still be self-serving, legalistic, immature and inwardly unhealed. Christian service is not the best determiner of spiritual maturity. And we all know that because we've all met people that have been Christians for years, but I still take offences and get upset really easily and are just difficult to be around. The productive life is important, but it's not the goal. Indeed, on the map of the Christian journey, those at this stage are only halfway there. And so what I spoke about last week was after this stage, we hit something called the journey inward, where we hit the wall. (coughs) Pardon me. And we hit this like a giant brick wall, like this giant wall behind us. We can't go over it, we can't go around it. And it's a stage where the foundations of our Christian uh, faith are shaken. It's a stage where everything that we have believed could never be shaken is shaken. Everything that we thought was true is now up for question. It's a time of doubting, it's a time of uncertainty, time of incredible loss and grief. Um, You know, it's a liminal space. 
um, a, a liminal space is that space between when we finish something and we're about to start something new. It's um, the, per- the perfect example of a liminal space is somebody on a trapeze and they have hold of one trapeze and they have to drop one trapeze before they can grab the next. And there's a, a time when they're just hanging in midair in this liminal space where they've let go of one thing, they haven't quite grabbed hold of the next. Actually, which reminds me, the girl that spoke at the very beginning um, in the red, I can't see... Yeah. Look, I really sense that, that for you, you ha- are in this liminal space, not knowing, you know, knowing what's been, but not quite knowing what's ahead, not quite knowing where God's going to place you. And I really sensed as you stood there today, you know, that, that this is exactly where you are. You've had this incredible heritage. There's been this incredible expectation and this incredible um, desire for success that has been there for you. And there have been many times where you've kind of felt like... Um, it was too much to bear, and can I move into what I really want to move into? And I just sense God say, you're in the right place at exactly the right time, and that you found your home. That was a really strong, you found your home. I don't know if that means anything to you, but I just felt very strongly. Anyway, that's that done. So, um, so where was I? Um, this liminal space, this space where you don't know what's been before and what's coming up ahead and you're kind of, you know, stuck. It's like if you're in a hotel room and you step outside to pick up the newspaper, the door closes, you're standing there naked in the hallway and you in this liminal space. You can't go downstairs, you can't go back into your room, you're just kind of stuck and you feel naked and awkward and uneasy. And so that's what this stage is in the wall. You can't go back. But you can't go forward, and you're just in this liminal space. It begins with a growing perception, as I said last week, that God has left us. God has hidden himself from us. Martin Luther calls it... Oh, I've got a new clicker, and it's not, it's not as good as it could be. There we go. Um, Deus absconditus, as I said, it sounds like a disease. God in hiding. Um, I love this by Peter... Oh, this is going to be really irritating. Pe- oh. Peter Gregg, Greg, who says, calls it God on mute. I like that. It's a little bit more, you know, postmodern, God on mute. A little bit more absconditis, less, rather. And uh, St. John of the Cross. Anyone here does Spanish? Because I'm going to absolutely obliterate this. Anyone here Spanish? Or Italian will do? Yes, that'll do. Can you read that for me? Nice and loud. Yeah, that. So that... The darkness that literally it means the darkness that obscures the soul's sight, or what we have come to know as the dark night of the soul. Thomas Keating describes this season in this way The dark night is about dismantling our immature programs for happiness, which can't possibly work in adult life. This is actually the beginning of a deeper union with Christ. There's a purpose in it. I loved what Nick said. You know, it brings you from a small place to a large place, it widens our boundaries. But it, uh, for most of us, it, uh, it's not a good experience. When the biblical desert opens up within us, we worry that something is going wrong in our relationship with God. In the dark night, we're called to make the transition from the super spirit, superficial spiritual nourishment to solid food of pure faith. There's a generalised aridity in both prayer and daily life. It feels like a great loss. Anyone who's been through this season will tell you that's, it, it, there's a grief involved. It's a loss. The free and easy exchanges that we had previously enjoyed with God are no longer there. Scripture readings like reading the phone book. This creates a period of mourning during which time all things that we had counted on to bring us spiritual happiness are slowly dying. 
we're being served much more substantial food, the dry bread of faith. Doesn't taste good. The baby weaned from its mother's breast does not like being deprived, but solid food will lead to more substantial growth. So that's bringing you up to speed from last week. And um, in my doctoral studies, I'm actually, my thesis is on equipping, it's kind of a bit of a Um, oxymoron, really, equipping Pentecostal believers to engage with seasons of spiritual darkness and doubt. You're not Pentys, so you don't get that. Usually usually when I say that around Pentys, they all laugh because they know that that's kind of an impossible thing to do. We, we We don't do it very well. We don't engage with spiritual darkness and doubt very well because we like to be up all the time and think that everything is fantastic. So, This stage that we're talking about today isn't discussed all that much. We talk a lot about how to bring people to Christ. We talk a lot about how to, um, you know, grow them in Christ. We talk a lot about how you need to serve in the church and become the person God's created you to be, but we don't talk a lot about this sort of stuff. But if you're a follower of Christ, you will, you know, for more than five minutes, you'll know that there comes a time when God wants us to do some deep internal work. And so... This week, I want to shift a little bit and look at what happens when we hit this stage. Because through the reading and research I've done, I've come up with like three um, reactions and responses that I think people have when they hit this wall. When they hit this wall and things don't work anymore, when they enter this dark night of the soul, when they enter this stage where things don't work how they used to work and there's incredible doubt and uncertainty. And the first is that many people bail out. It's just too hard, it doesn't work, and so they find the back door. Um, Sometimes people drop off the journey totally at this point. Overwhelmed by pain or crisis in their lives, they cut themselves off from God. And they completely walk away. It's especially true of people who have no outlet to be able to talk about their their fears or their uncertainty. Um, You know, if you're in a, a community that equates absolute certainty with faith... Um, then it's almost impossible to start to talk about doubt. If you're in a community that values being certain and sure of of what you believe and equate that to this is what true Christian faith looks like, then when you start to express your doubts, then you you tend to be shunned by the community. Barner's research from last year is interesting. He writes this. um, 60% of young people, this is American-based, but still... 60% of young people will leave the church from age 15 onwards. And 70% of 18 to 22-year-olds stop attending church for at least one year and the vast majority of whom don't return. Now, I'm interested because there's a lot of, like, you know, younger age group here. How many of you would have left the church for a year or so or, you know, done this kind of walk away and then come back, maybe found your place here? Nice and high. Have a look at that. Yeah, so I'm preaching to the choir this morning, really, aren't I? So this is quite common, but the fact that the vast majority don't return, my children are in this classification, walked out through the back door and have not come back and have no desire to come back because they felt at a time in their life when they needed to express some doubts to their faith community, it wasn't accepted. David Kinnaman writes this, over one-third of 18 to 22-year-olds say the church is not a safe place to express doubts, and one-fourth have serious doubts that they would like to discuss. You know, they, we come to a point where we hit that wall, and, you know, this is a process, you know, life never stops. 
And this is a process where we go round and round and round. So, you know, 15 to 22 is usually when you hit this stage, first off. But then you hit midlife and you'll go through it again. It'll just look a bit different that time round. Um, and the reason it goes downwards is because the Christian journey is all about loss of self and being filled with Christ, becoming more like him, rather than we're going upwards, we're going to a higher level. Please save me from all that. So um, these are some of the questions that get asked at this stage, whether you're going through the dark night of the soul, whether you've hit the wall when you're young or whether you've hit the wall you know, in later in life. These are some of the things. This isn't working anymore. I pray and read the Bible, but I don't feel anything. I desperately ask God for things, but they just don't happen. I feel like God doesn't care about me anymore. Does, really, does God really want me to be happy? Is God really good? Aren't these people just ignoring what's going on in the real world? I get that a lot. I feel so judged by these people, meaning the church community. I feel like I don't fit in. They all seem so perfect and so happy. I don't understand my, why my life isn't like that. This one's a classic. I don't know why God would answer a prayer for sunshine at a wedding but ignore a mother's plea to save the life of her dying child. That's a big, those kind of questions are big questions. How is it that we hear people stand up in church and say, you know, it was my daughter's wedding at the weekend and we just prayed and, and the rain stopped and the sun came out and isn't God good? And you, it makes you wonder, is that God? Is that God? You start to question, is that God? Is that really what our, the God we serve is all about, stopping sunshine for wedding when, when there are people in the, in the two-thirds world that are losing family members every day through famine and hardship who cry out to the Lord? Like, sometimes we need to re-examine the foundations of our faith and see what's real and what's just been passed down to us. Does God really care if I find a parking spot? I don't know how many times I've been in the car with people and they go, Lord, I'm just looking for a car park. And I think, I'll oh, find your own flopping car park. <laughs> do, I'm not a very good Pentecostal, am I? Do, do, I need, do I need to remove my intellect to become a committed follower of Christ? Take a couple of minutes at your tables and, and see if you relate to any of those questions or maybe talk about a time when, you, when you're found out, you know, when you're in that dark light, like Nick was t- sharing today, what were some of the questions that were raised for you? Take a couple of minutes to do that. Okay. Uh, Gregory Boyd, in his book, Benefit of the Doubt, which is an outstanding read, um, says, I wanted so desperately to believe my experience with Christ wasn't an illusion and my sense of purpose a false dream. I desperately wanted to re-experience that delightful feeling of certainty I'd enjoyed throughout the previous year. I eventually shared my pain with some of my friends who, after chastising me, told me that my doubt was from Satan and that I needed to let it go and just believe. I so badly wanted to return to the joy of feeling certain that I actually tried this several times, but it frankly felt artificial. It didn't work. My brain would not let me forget the troubling questions. I returned to the atheism I'd embraced in the four years leading up to my conversion. I think for those who have a very high level of authenticity, just believing and pushing down the doubts and pushing down the things that start to bubble to the surface and the darkness that starts to come around you isn't enough. You, you actually can't live with the cognitive dis, 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 dissonance. Try and get that word out. You, you can't live with the dissonance. You, you, can't, you can't settle. And so they just walk away. It's just easier to give it a miss. The second response to the dark night is to bounce back. 
go back to the safety of what I've always known. So we don't walk out the back door, we just bounce back to how it used to be. La, 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 I'm not listening, I'm not listening, and we push down the doubts. Again, this is particularly true in communities that are kind of humped, uh, hyped up and, you know, pumped up and, you know, we have to, we're all, we're, you know, this is what we believe and, you know, very passionate and fervent about everything. Or, you know, when real faith, again, is measured by how certain we are of everything and how sure we are and how, how much we refuse to engage with anything that might raise any questions. So those who bounce back go back to the safety of what they've always known um, because, they, because they need to fit in, because they need to feel part of the community, because they're afraid of being judged or shunned or marginalised. Um, this is particularly true in very socialised organisations. And for them, it's easier to push down the doubts. It's easier for them to ignore those nagging questions. Um, it's easier just to you know, clap your hands and go through the motions then go through the pain of dismantling your faith in an, in an environment where that's not acceptable. So that they will fear being ostracised from the group. And this is the mantra of the people who bounce back. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And if I say it often enough, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, that's it, that's it, there's no room for doubt, and, and they're very uptight, and they're very dogmatic. And to this, my friend always says, goes, um, people said it, you believe it, and that settles nothing. <laughs> so, but this kind of uh, dogmatic refusal to stay open, um, you know, you, you, when my kids were little, especially our, well, our young daughter in particular, she used to be scared of monsters under the bed and, and in her wardrobe. She had a mirrored door and she used to see herself in the mirror and think that there was someone in the room. She's actually a bit cleverer than that now. but um, So she would. She used to be afraid that there was a monster under the bed. And I'd say, come on, darling, just lean over and we'll have a look. And she goes, no. And I go, but Bethy, there's nothing there, darling. There's nothing there. She goes, no, no, no. I might find a monster and then I'll be more scared. And in this stage of bounce back, that's what happens. We don't look. We don't look under the bed because what if we find a monster? And so we prefer to just go back to how it all it is and have this, this faith that is based on certainty on what we believe but it doesn't go it doesn't go below the surface this is particularly significant for people who are in in key leadership roles and now I know it sounds like you know sort of a, a bit of a conflict but for people who are in key significant or significant leadership roles they they kind of stand up there and tell everyone the answers so it's very hard to admit that you don't have it all together so for those in leadership when you start to go through this season it's very hard. How do you stand up there and talk to people when actually the very foundations of your faith are being challenged? You know, there's these deep, deep fear that somebody might find out the truth. This email was sent to me by, her name's not Susan, but a 42-year-old pastor from a, a Pentecostal church of about 400 people. She wrote, I simply can't tell anyone how I feel. All the sermons at our church center on living a victorious life and keeping away from negative people who destroy your faith. If I told people what was going on in my life, I think I'd lose my job. They, they wouldn't trust me anymore. They wouldn't understand that I deeply love God. They'd just think I'd given in to doubt. I think they equate unquestioning blind acceptance as true faith. And anyone who dares to use their brain or be honest about the questions they have is labelled as rebellious or negative. 
So in some churches and some places, you know, when leaders feel like they have to have it all together, they have to be super pastor, you know, the celebrity leader, the the person that everybody comes to, and they're too afraid to actually wrestle with their own doubts. Eldridge calls this living a lesser life, skating across the surface of our life, you know, miles wide and quarter of an inch deep. And people who bounce back, you can generally pick them because they're very dogmatic. They argue a point. They don't like to listen to other points of view. And it's kind of, they're at the base of it all, at the bottom of it all, there's one, one emotion. What is it? Fear. The bottom of it all is fear. So afraid. So afraid to look. So afraid that things might fall apart. Gerald May writes, for all of us, there are moments of dawning awareness little cracks in our armour that reveal glimpses of our deeper longing and our true nature. We generally don't like what we see there because it forces us to admit that we're fundamentally dissatisfied. Now, what happens when you're in a leadership role and deep down in your heart you realise you're fundamentally dissatisfied with your faith? It's a challenging time and it takes a great deal of courage to press through. So we keep quiet and... Unfortunately, a lot of our churches and fellowships and communities are filled with leaders who have bounced back. You know, they've bounced back to those early stages of just talking about God and serving in the church, and they haven't dealt with those difficult issues. And it makes it impossible for them to lead people any further. It makes it impossible for them to talk to anyone else who's, you know, they can't spend time with somebody like, Nick, who's going through this dark night because it's beyond their comprehension. And there's a lot of fear there. They don't want to go there themselves. Gregory Boyd, again, writes this. The obstacle to my faith were too formidable, and I could not, for the life of me, find an intelligent and informed Christian to help me work through them. How very sad. How very sad that he couldn't find anyone to talk to. And you know, what's incredibly scary about that is that every single writer on faith formation, on the faith journey, on the dark night of the soul, says that people who make it through the dark night of the soul to an integrated faith, people who manage to press through, deal with their doubts and find a different side of God and start to engage with God on a different level, every single one of them has one thing in common, one thing, the only thing. Anyone have any idea what it is? No, they did not go through it by themselves. They went through it how Nick did. He found somebody. Somebody found him. Because you can't go through it by yourself. You can't. It's the one thing that is common to every single writer who says you can't go through the dark night of the soul by yourself and come to an integrated faith without a mentor, a family member, a friend. It might be a book. You know, but something or someone who hears and acknowledges and affirms where you're at. This is okay. This is God. Hang in there. This is good. Let's talk about your fears. David Brenner writes this. If you're making significant progress on the transformational journey of Christian spirituality, you have one or more friendships that support that journey. If you do not, you are not. It's that simple. And so what happens is we have a lot of church communities, faith communities, who are filled with men and women who haven't been able to face, walk through this. They've bounced back. 
And so they raise these communities that are all based on the bounce back because they're incapable of leading anyone through. That's why something, you know, a community like this is so important. Having known Steve and Louis for such a long time, they've done this journey. They've walked through it. And you can feel it when you're with them. You can feel the openness. You can feel the, uh, you know, there's nothing that you can say to me that's going to shock me or make me not love you. This is all part of the journey. Share with me where you're at. It is an invaluable space to be in. And the, the problem is that unless we're prepared to go there, we can never really be authentic or lead other people there. And it's particularly sad. I'm sure you've all met people who have bounced back. Many churches are full of, there's whole churches that are just bounce back churches. You walk in there and you go, oh my goodness, oh oh my goodness. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things. I sit in the front row there and I'm thinking, why have they got me speaking here? I I think that's what they think when I stand up to speak too. (laughs) And lastly, this is the, um, the most desired response I would suggest, and that is to brave it through. And the reason I've used the words brave it through is because, we, you know, especially in, in like Pentecostal and charismatic churches, we love the term breakthrough. You know, we love that word. We're going to break through to a higher level. Come on, stand up and let's, let's break through in prayer. And oh, it's just so exhausting, isn't it? Um, and so this is actually not about breaking through. It's about braving it through. Because the dark night of the soul, oh, sorry, I keep talking to you, Nick, but you just introduced this subject so beautifully. Is, is about, you can't, you, can't, you can't do anything. You can't. All you can do is brave through. All you can do is grit your teeth and let God do the work that he has to do in your life. Here we're up against the wall and we can't do anything and we're set on God's timetable. John of the Cross calls it passive purgation. Passive because we're accepting or allowing what happens without active resistance. So we're not actively resisting or fighting. And purgation, because it's the act of purging, of being purified, of being cleansed. And so we're submitting to what God is doing in our lives. And it doesn't feel like God. It definitely doesn't feel like God. It feels like we're losing our faith. But we don't break through, we just surrender. Michael Fallon says, again, a beautiful book, Yielding to Love. Uh, During purgation, God hides himself. The tide of love seems to ebb. God, who touched our soul in such an intimate way, seems to withdraw and to be absent. In this enforced passivity, it will seem to us that God has abandoned us and left us in darkness. But it couldn't be further from the truth. And in this season, our part is to wait. I love this quote by Sue Monk Kidd. Our part is to learn to sit, yielding to God's activity in us, opening ourselves to divine prayer, listening to the silence. My still heart, my silence, my very posture of waiting against a backdrop of darkness became my prayer. It's finding new pathways to God. You know, it's closing the Bible and walking in nature. You probably don't want to open the Bible if you're in this stage anyway. It's sitting in contemplative silence. It's listening to music. It's um, seeing God in the arts. It's seeing God in graffiti. It's seeing God in the music. In the, it's finding God in the places that we've never found him before. Because we've been 
on this pathway, finding God, one side of God. You know, there's a story about uh, four blind men who were asked to describe an elephant. And the first blind man grabbed hold of his tail and said, oh, an elephant is like a piece of string and very wiry and, and thin. And another one grabbed hold of, put its arms around his foot and said, no, 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 an elephant is like a tree, a giant tree. And he has a huge, big, solid um, trunk that leads to the sky. And the other one grabbed hold of his trunk and said, no, an elephant is like a snake. And he moves and twists and turns. And then one of them grabbed hold of his ear and said, no, 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 an elephant is like a giant fan and like a giant leaf off a palm tree. And all of them were right, but all of them were wrong. All of them were right, but they only had, only had part of the story. They only had part of the picture. And in the dark night of the soul, God shifts us. He shows us a different side of the elephant. He shows us a different side of him. He leads us into pathways of relating to him and learning about him that we hadn't done before, and it increases compassion in our lives. Suddenly, when we're on the other side of the fence, we start to see things differently. C.S. Lewis says that what you see depends on where you're standing. And in the dark night of the soul, you stand in a very different place and you see things very differently. And this is God's whole purpose in this, is to take us to a different place. The most common question I get asked is this. How do, oh, not that. How do I know that this is really God and not the consequences of sin, depression, or just apathy? Now, if you don't understand about stages of faith, you know, you, your Christian friends are usually the most hurtful. They'll all be, you know, trying to pray you out of it or tell you to read the Bible more because they think you've just hit an apathetic stage. Or maybe you just feel like well, there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm depressed or how, how do you know? Take a couple of seconds to chat about that. How do you know? Okay. Hopefully you will have come up with some of, some of these answers. How do I know that this is really God? I still have an intense desire to connect with God. That's probably the big underlying thing that makes a difference. Oh, yeah, there's high fives going on over here. Well done. Well done. Yoo-hoo. Because when we're apathetic, you know, like I have people come and say, you know, in tears after I've, especially, you know, in churches that are more, so, you know, have a strong socialized faith. And they'll say, oh my goodness, I just thought that I was, you know, that I was a backsliding Christian. And how do I know that I'm a backsliding Christian? And I say, well, you wouldn't be here in tears right now saying this to me if you're a backsliding Christian. The very fact that you still have a strong desire to connect with God and that you're trying to connect with God shows me that you're not, you know, you're not in a stage where you're turning your back or walking into apostasy. Secondly, um, no matter how hard I try, I can't feel the consolation of God. So the, you, know, you, you can't feel the love of God, but it's not for want of trying. And so you haven't given up. You're not in an apathetic place where you've given up. It's, it's deep down inside there's a strong desire to, to move forward and to feel the love of God. That's one of the big things. No matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I raise my hands in worship, <laughs> no matter how hard I reach for the sky, I still feel nothing. And lastly... Old ways of connecting with God are no longer fruitful. So the things that used to work no longer work anymore. The things that may have worked for a long time. Now I have to say, because someone just brought to my attention, if, you've, if, if you haven't hit this stage yet, I'm, I'm sorry, I hope this isn't depressing you. <laughs> um, 
you know, our journey with God goes through stages. You can't expect to reach, you know, middle age when you're just a new Christian. So you've got to learn to walk and you've got to learn to be a teenager and you've got to go through the stages before you hit this. But at least you can hear this and when it happens to you, hopefully go, oh, I remember that crazy ranger talking about this. And <laughs> Our friends have gone to Borneo this week and they're going to see the orangutans and they go, we'll say hi to your rallies for you. <laughs> okay, where was I? So um, I was here about 18 months ago and I did talk a little bit about seasons of God and I want to just go back for a second to the whole analogy of um, um, a caterpillar, which is really an extremely good example for this stage of spiritual growth. Um, the New Children's Encyclopedia, because I'm really into deep reading, um, <laughs> says this, in every case, the transformation while in the pupa stage is truly a miracle. This is not a, a churchy thing. This is like, you know, in the library. What, <laughs> what emerges from this chrysalis in no way resembles the caterpillar that produced it. There takes place a complete disassembly of the cells that made up the caterpillar, and the reassembly of those cells into its new form, a butterfly. I'm sorry, but that's really cool. So we become caterpillar Christians. And if any of you have got little kids and you've read The Very Hungry Caterpillar, you know, he eats and 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 he gets really fat. And that's what we do in stages one, two, and three of our Christian walk. And then God says, actually, this isn't the whole story. I want you to fly. And so we go into this dark place, this confined place, this place where we can't move. We used to crawl around eating leaves. We can't do that anymore. There's no joy. We're just in this dark cocoon, squashed in like this. And we wonder what the heck is going on. And don't you love this? There's a complete disassembly and reassembly. And that's what God does in this season. And it doesn't necessarily feel nice. It's dark and it's not good. But guess what? You come out like a beautiful butterfly. And that's where you go, oh, you know, like, isn't that cool? So I'm not getting the reactions that I really want here, <laughs> basically. So the caterpillar starts like this little thing and he thinks that's his life. He thinks that he's, that's it. You know, the caterpillar has no concept that he's actually meant to be a butterfly. He just thinks, I'm just doing my caterpillar life. And then suddenly God causes him to go into this space and come out with wings, completely different. And God loves us enough to push us into the chrysalis, to push us into this place of darkness. And he's disassembling and reassembling. He's giving us wings to fly. And it doesn't feel nice, but that's how it is. A couple of years ago... I mentioned to Greg, my husband, that his Bible had quite a significant amount of dust on it. I could actually write my name in the dust on his Bible. And I said, I, you know, like, you backslidden heretic. No, I didn't, but <laughs> I said, Dal, I noticed that you're not, you know, you haven't been reading your Bible. I didn't ask him how his walk with God was, so I stopped short. And he goes, you know, I, I just can't, I can't, I just can't do it. I open it, I just, I can't do it. And I said, so are you still praying? Like, do you pray? Do you have any kind of connection with God? And he said, well, yeah, I do. He says, I, I sit there and I uh, look at God. And he looks at me. And I go, well, I'm here, Lord. 
And he says, well, I'm glad. And that's about where it stops. And I think in the dark night of the soul, that's prayer. That's communion with God. That's the place where we just go, I'm here, Lord. We just open ourselves. We stay open and undefended before the presence of God. And we just go, God, I don't understand this. But whatever you're doing in my life, I embrace it and I turn it to you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is intimately involved in knowing who we are. Lord, we thank you that you see each one of us and that you know each one of us. Lord, we thank you that you see where we are on the journey, where we are progressing, where we're growing and where you want to take us. And Lord, I just pray that you will come to us now and just affirm each person here in where they are. Lord, I pray in the quietness right now that you will just speak into our hearts. Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you that you are present here with us today, that you live within us and that your desire is to move in and through us. And Lord, we just commit ourselves to you afresh. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We submit and we yield to whatever you are choosing to do. And Lord, regardless of how it feels, we choose to trust you in this moment. In Jesus' name.